0: Welcome to this Centrum podcast for more podcasts or to join Centrum programs, building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org.
1: I'm Rob Berman with Centrum. In this talk, originally recorded on November 16, 2020, museum director Eric Dorfman is joined by Canute Berger from Crosscut for an exploration of a future exhibition illuminating diversity in gender and sexuality among reptiles, birds, and mammals, including primates. Eric shares how this diversity develops from the action of genes and hormones and how people come to differ from one another in all aspects of body and behavior. Our podcast begins with the voice
2: of Knut Berger. It's my privilege to introduce tonight's speaker, Dr. Eric Dorfman. He's director and CEO of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. He completed his doctorate from the University of Sydney on scale dependent habitat use of waterbirds in Eastern and Central Australia. He's a member of the executive board of the International Council of Museums and co-authored their Code of Ethics for Natural History Museums. He was previously director of the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. Eric is author of several books on New Zealand natural history and climate change as well as scholarly papers on museum education, public programming, Egyptology, and the ecology of wetland birds. His most recent book is The Future of Natural History Museums, published in 2018. And tonight he's gonna tell us about nature's rainbow, sex, gender, and reproduction in the natural world. It's more complicated than you think he's going to start with a presentation. Uh, He and I will have a chance to talk, converse afterwards, and uh, there will be time, as Rob said, for question and answers. So without further ado, Dr. Dorfman.
3: Hello. Thank you, Knut. It's great to be here. I'm really excited about sharing a topic that's very important to me. Part of it about social justice, I suppose, and part of it about science and and where those two things connect. So what I'm talking about is an exhibition concept that is being developed at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. That is the museum, as Knut mentioned, that I used to be director of. I've since moved to North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, but the work continues so I'm very hopeful that in the future this exhibition that I'll be talking about is going to come to fruition and will in fact tour nationally so you may even get a chance to see it over your way. So what I want to do is start with a story. I think it, it's always nice to to break the ice for this story and this one's a, a personal one. So I grew up in the Bay Area of California and When I was a a young man, very young, maybe just on the verge of, well, kind of as a teenager, I became aware of my own sexuality and quite confused. There was a, a lot of differing opinions about what it meant to be gay and what it meant to be normal, and those two really didn't necessarily match up. So I spent a long time in confusion as a, as a youth. And then I ended up at UC San Diego and I studied biology and took a wonderful course in evolution there. And our textbook was evolutionary biology and, uh, and, the, and it was written by Douglas Futuma. And in this book, he says, basically, well, it's not really why are we worrying so much about being gay or or non-heteronormative lifestyles when it's rife throughout the natural world and is just a product of evolution now this was not much more than a comment maybe it was a page long and so the it didn't really go into depth but it made a profound impact on me because what i i realized was that actually, I wasn't so different. That I wasn't a, um, a pariah. That I was actually part of the world of biology, and and that to me made a huge difference in my settling myself as as a person in in society. And and so then, when I became director of Carnegie Museum of Natural Sciences, I realized that I had a platform to start helping other people in that situation use science to help them understand their place in the world and the universe. So what I'd like to do is bring you on a a little bit of a journey uh, before I start talking about the exhibition itself. And this is just a, a sort of a thought experiment, if you like. If it's an anomaly. If, if being uh, non-heteronormative is an anomaly, then maybe it only crops up recently. Maybe it's something that's in the water or, or it's something to do with social disaffection or whatever. And so what I'd like to do is first, as the first step in this, say... We'll take the way back machine and I'd like to take you on a journey back in time. And this will be a celebratory journey, not one that is uh, about persecution. And we, of course, we know that that non straight people have met with lots of persecution and and it's just, this is not going to be about that. So, and, and the point, the question I'm asking is, is this, something that has been with humanity for all of its existence. So I'll just pick a random date, 2014, the Miss Vahine Tane transgender beauty pageant. um, And uh, Vahine Tane means woman, man. And um, in fact, I was lucky enough to meet uh, this particular winner when I was in Tahiti. So that was quite exciting. Go back a little further, 2000, the Netherlands is the first country to allow same-sex marriage. And, uh, and even further, uh, 1867, uh, Karl Heinrich Ulrichs is uh, championing the cause of uh, um, equal rights for, for homosexuals. Even further, 1791, the French National Constituent Assembly adopts a new penal code, which no longer criticizes sodomy. And here they are at their first meeting, famously in the tennis courts of Versailles. A a little bit earlier, the same thing was happening in England. Uh, Jeremy Bentham argues against its decriminalization. Sorry, and he says, it is the greatest Happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of what's right and wrong. 1532, Michelangelo writes over 300 love poems to T- Tommaso de Cavalieri. Love takes me captive, beauty binds my soul, pity and mercy with their gentle eyes, wake in my heart a hope that cannot cheat. A bit further, Erasmus writes similar letters to a fellow monk. For you, my dearest Servatius, has always been and is still so great that you are dearer to me than these eyes, than this soul, than this self. 1300, Edward II and Piers Gaveston. And uh, this is Christopher Marlowe's rendition of in Edward II, and um, what Gaveston welcome kiss not my hand embrace me Gaveston as I do thee why shouldst thou kneel knowest thou not who I am thy friend thyself another Gaveston not he was more mourned of Hercules than thou hast been of me since thy exile these are not his own words but it it was so well known a story in Christopher Marlowe's day that this poignant interchange was was something that everybody could recognize. Eleven sixty four, and I'm not going to read for the sake of time. I'm not going to read every one of these. There are um, there was Ailred uh, um, of Rivlo writes de spiritali amicitia. The spiritual friendship, talking about the relationships between men and the relationship of that to religion. In 850, Abbot Alsuin of York writes love poems to other monks. I think of your love and friendship with such sweet memories, Reverend Bishop, that I long for that lovely time when I may be able to clutch the neck of your sweetness with the fingers of my desires. This is pretty steamy stuff for 850. In, uh, so now we go back to ancient Rome, Emperor elagabulus marries Zoticus, the, um, the athlete from Smyrna. So we have an emperor marrying a man. I suppose it was easy to do what, what called to you when you were emperor, but yet this was exactly the, this was institutionalized back then. Um, Plato, in 385 BC, publishes a symposium arguing for the nobility of love between males, and um, he he says of of men who embrace other men, these are the best of boys and youths because they have mostly manly nature. Now I am I'm you'll see that a lot of these examples are examples between men, and that's not because that's not in any way to downplay the relationship of women to other women, but it was not written about to the same degree. So, I mean, certainly there was Sappho back then as well, but there are fewer examples. So, but, but please understand that I'm, I'm making generalizations here as well. So in 630 BC, Dorian aristocrats adopt formal relations between males. Further back, the first known single-sex couple in 24 BC, that is uh, four and a half thousand years ago in ancient Egypt. And finally, the very furthest back we can go, 9,600 BCE Mesolithic petroglyphs may depict homosexual relationships. And this is of course, subject to interpretation. But if it's true, this is 11,000 years ago. Um, And so I think it's safe to say that single sex relationships and connections have been with us for as long as far back as we can go. So in the sense that it could be considered natural within the human species, I think that this is pretty strong evidence for it. And, of course, the, the, the thing to remember with this being a naturally occurring phenomenon is that even though people are, uh, who are in same-sex relationships are frequently non-productive, that over the course of human history, 11,000 years of it, we've had a consistent recurrence or continuance, if you like, of single-sex relationships and single sex desires. So then if we if we take that as red, and it's always been part of the human condition, can we call it natural? And the the what is natural? That's a really tough and and nuanced question. But let's say one, let's do one test here. And that's the bonobo. So Bonobo shares more than 96% of its genetic makeup with humans. It, it, it's very, very close to humans and they are pansexual. So Bonobo is a pygmy chimpanzee and they use sex uh, across all genders, ages, relationships within their society as a way of maintaining social structure. So it's a, uh, it, they are, they are, are genuinely pansexual. So, all right, fair enough. The the species that is closest to humans genetically um, shows this sort of fluidity in in sexual behavior. What about other species? Well, okay. Here's the golden monkey, and um, there are uh, lots of examples of um, single sex. Uh, behavior within golden monkeys. A little bit further away, giraffes, that's uh, quite common. Uh, Lions, in fact, here's evidence of it right here. Chipmunks, North American porcupines, mallards, cock of the rocks. In fact, 16% of adult male cock of the rocks only copulate with other males. So this is, in fact, uh, this is the most, um, uh, if you like, homosexual bird on record. Penguins, and of course, um, single sex couples of penguins raising uh, abandoned eggs is, uh, is quite a famous situation. Then you have a clownfish. So getting even further away, now things become, remember with with the species that, we, that we're talking about, the idea of being gay or straight is, is not, it doesn't work the same the way it does in humans. And in fact, the way we consider being gay or straight or any of those other divisions uh, really is a, a fairly recent phenomenon in human societies as well. So the clownfish, the, they live in social groups, and here you see them uh, tucked into an anemone, and uh, there are a number of individuals in any social group, and the, 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 the smallest ones are all male, and the one single one, the largest one, is a female. And if something happens to her, she dies of old age or, or swims away, then the largest of the males will then uh, metamorphose into being a female. So, this is one of the many different ways that you can, um, that fish have, uh, sorry, one of the many different mating systems that animals can have. And then you have, here's another one uh, common garden snails, they're all hermaphroditic. So, all garden snails have both male and female sexual organs. And when they mate, they, Exchange gametes equally between the two. In fact, there are 240 mammal species listed on Wikipedia that have where same-sex uh, copulations have been observed. And here's just two two examples, then two, two more examples, and these are quite extreme examples. That's why I've got them singled out. So the female cob antelopes live in all female groups and they use sex with each other as social bonding. So uh, essentially all female cob antelopes um, exhibit female-female copulations. On the other side of the spectrum, young male bighorn sheep um, live in all male groups, which uh, uh, male-male sex is ubiquitous. And, um, and they only break these bonds to go and um, copulate and have children. And um, the, the same is actually true for manatees and uh, a number of other mammal species that, that living in single sex groups which are um, sexually active are extremely common. So this brings us to the exhibition Nature's Rainbow, The Science of Sex, Gender and Identity. We're, we're trying to unpick not only these, these things, but the, um, the science that's behind it. And I want to um, acknowledge my friend and colleague, Dr. Chase Mendenhall. He's a curator of ornithology at Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And he um, is curator of this exhibition and remains working on it even now. So the big idea is that diverse sexualities, genders and identities are natural and often beneficial. And this is the key thing. I mentioned it a little bit ago that these um, there's, if there's a recurrence of 11,000 years of essentially non-reproductive or, or mostly non-reproductive individuals, and yet this, this genotype, comes up over and over and over again there must be some um benefit to the human species for this to occur and that's one of the things that's ex- explored in this exhibition so this is long i'll just read it to you from the seed of the forest to the city nature's rainbow transport supports visitors through immersive environments where they encounter stories of sex, gender, and identity in nature. In this exhibition, we celebrate diversity and explore the benefits that bring it to the world. Millions of years of sex and natural selection have resulted in a spectacular rainbow of bodies and family dynamics across the tree of life. Thanks to new scientific research, There is now evidence that diverse sexualities occur naturally in humans and other animals. Now the bits in orange, immersive environments and scientific research. In a natural history exhibition, that's always the challenge. How do you you convey the, the complex arcane and nuanced results of years, decades of scientific research in such a way that a visitor can understand it and really get a simple meaning from it. And that's where this idea of immersive environments comes together. And we're, we're trying to tell a story to um, somebody through the impact of being in an environment, not just signs on a wall. So the exhibition is divided up into uh, four Four sections. The first is the introduction, which essentially goes through what I what I was just talking about, thinking about um, the 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 history of the study of sex, gender, and identity, and um, of the behaviors and society that help us understand it. And so, am I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Well, I think I've just done that. Um, And then um, we've got the sea. So, um, and in the sea we're we're trying to convey the scientific basis for what we're talking about as well as genes and bodies and the cells that make up those those physical structures. Then we'll move on to the forest where behavior, family and cooperation is covered. And I'm gonna be going through this in more detail in a minute. Then through that, we have uh, identity, uh, city, performance, agency, and culture. So really we're looking at here, the sea is about sex, the forest is about gender, and the city is about identity. And, and then the exit is, is through there. So the other thing is that even though we're talking a lot about animals, about microbiology, about hormones, the human experience comes through in every case. So you can see these orange dots. They are um, pointing out that we will be looking at, they will be the exhibition, will cover um, many as- aspects of the human experience, both historically and with modern people. So first sex. So we're looking at genes and cells and the evolution of sex among the distant distant ancestors of humans so how did sex evolve in the earliest of of the earth's organisms and then stories of sea creatures convey why sex creates diversity and the one thing about about the relatively less complex animals of the of the ocean is that their mating systems and in fact many other body systems like eating are very plastic. So there's some microscopic organisms that in good times will eat other organisms and in bad times, lean times will photosynthesize. So the, the, this is the, the way that that evolution kind of got started, if you like. And then finally, how diverse bodies evolved and developed. So I mentioned that it'll be a div- um, an immersive environment. So this is not from the exhibition, but it'll give you a sense of what it will be like these um, really impactful um, sceno- scenographic environments that people will learn this, this information in. And so, um, some of the the deeper parts of it will be looking, as I mentioned, the evolution of sex, and then also the determinants of sex. And really, there's a big difference between the idea of sex and the idea of gender. So sex is really the size of gametes, right? So if you have large gametes, you're a female, if you have, so that's eggs. If you have small gametes, sperm, you're a male. And from that that is the most basic division between uh, organisms of a single species you can get. Gender is about expression, right? So it's it's all of the different uh, ways you can you can uh, present your sex. We're looking at populations and environments, diverse bodies, so binary, non-binary asexual so this is all with a focus on strategies for cell contact from an evolutionary perspective bodies are a way of getting one gamete to the next gamete so they can meet and make more make more cells and those cells form into bodies which in a sense from an evolutionary perspective are just ways of moving your genetic material around through an uncertain environment We'll also, of course, look at human stories, examining ancestors in the sea, and then also the modern the modern take, helping people understand the the reflections of intersex individuals and what their experiences are. Moving on to the forest, that's about gender. And thinking about gender as a cooperative behavior. I, I mentioned that it's an expression of your sex, while well, cooperating gives the opportunity again for your gametes to get into the next generation we introduced the idea of fitness so from from a natural selection evolutionary perspective fitness is the number of genes you can get into the next generation and for this to work for a a uh, somebody who is non-reproductive or an organism that is non-reproductive, we have to think about inclusive fitness. How many genes do your brothers, your cousins, your second cousins get into the new, next generation? And if you can help them do that, then you are making, um, um, uh, you're, you're increasing your, your evolutionary fitness. So that, that is also covered in this area. So it's going to be an immersive area uh, as well with lots of things to do and um, um, very kind of a complex uh, habitat and, and a lot of um, digital work in this area too. So thinking about the word gender and diverse genders, relating that to um, sexual behaviors and the idea of family, which is basically what I just talked about. If you can help your family, then from an evolutionary perspective, you're successful. Talking about also human stories, but this paves the way to also to thinking about family and community. How do, um, how are non-binary organisms welcomed in to a family setting and, and thinking about examples from variety of cultures as well. There are many cultures where, um, who, who deal with um, other gender norms in a way that is very different from our Western society. So, and thinking about bias and status, this is starting as we go through the exhibition, it gets less um, specifically scientific and and starts blending in culture more and more to the end where it's really entirely cultural, and that is that final third is the city, which is identity, culture, identity, performance, and community. We think about performing our gender, and I'll talk about that uh, a little bit more. I think with Knut, visitors can express their own personal and intersectional. Identities. So, if you are non-binary, this is a place for you to explore what that means in terms of science, what it means in terms of culture, in a safe space. So, the street itself will be a an environment that is it goes from quite forested to really completely urban over the space of this of this gallery, and. There are shop windows. There are, are things to look at in peering into windows. For instance, a, a lawyer's office uh, examines various legislation around um, uh, gay marriage and um, decriminalization of uh, non-heterosexuals. So there's, there's a lot of different kinds of things there to, to see as a foil for for thinking about different perspectives of um, the the experience of sexual identity, and then the final one is a chance for you to go and dive deeper into it. It's a shop you can actually, or a a, a building you can actually enter into, and it's actually somebody's house, and you can walk through the house and get into a uh, a large dressing room space, which gives you. Um, a lot of our uh, opportunity to focus this conversation down on your own personal experience. So there's um, a opportunity to try on clothes, to play with representations of your own gender, to um, think about um, uh, per- the performative idea of gender, how we think about our identity, how we reinforce it through everything we do. There's also um, the idea of technology as an extension of identity. So, so for instance, um, um, gender corrective surgery, and and thinking more personally about that and what that might mean to you, or understanding what it has meant to other people. And this is also a place for visitors to express their own identities to others. And so the the idea is that there are opportunities to leave your own record and your own experiences behind for other people to share. And then um, that leads to the exit of the the museum, which provides there's a a place just out, I'm sorry, the exit of the exhibition. And just outside is a place for conversation and reflection of um, what, I believe will be quite a, a powerful experience, and that is the end of my talk. Look forward to uh, answering questions.
2: Okay, that is just totally fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. and 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 I have so many questions myself, um, and. First of all, I wanted to kind of go big picture in terms of evolution. Uh, What would Darwin think if he were alive now and could have the advantage of this additional research and whatnot has been done? I'm trying to see this within the evolutionary context um, and the the historic evolutionary context. What, What do we know now? And what do you think that would have been thought of by uh, the early um, proponents of evolution?
3: Yeah, it's interesting too, because um, of course Darwin was deeply spiritual and, or, and religious. And of course, steeped in Victorian tradition, It's it's hard to know how he would have parsed this out, this particular thread but that said you know he one of the things that you have to accept the idea of inclusive fitness for and and group selection and this is something the idea of group selection that natural selection which is different differential survival and reproduction um could work on groups of organisms together and that is something that I don't think he got to at this point so I think if you were to walk him through and you know incredibly fine mind if you were to walk him through the idea of group selection and um inclusive fitness i I think he would have got there <laughs> you know um, yeah. but, but i it it's not in it's not embedded immediately in any of his writings.
2: Wondering about this sort of human bias view. Um, I mean, there are many people from different faiths or, sure. um, you know, who believe that human beings are the sort of perfect expression of biology. Mm. Um, you know, that, that we were made in God's image, uh, male and female so do you think is there a bias in terms of how we look at nature in the sense of uh we we view all these complex reproductive systems as primitive and not evolving as they should toward the higher species
3: well the the It's very hard because this argument really, it's fundamental underpinnings is evolution and evolutionary. So immediately, if you consider that God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, then you you can't use this argument in a way. What you have to do if you want to be accepting from a faith-based perspective, is say, well, um, God created all creatures, God created people who were non-heteronormative, and that's okay, right? And and God doesn't judge, or if, if there is judgment to be done, let it, let God do the judging. And that's where, but the one thing that's really important and that I didn't get to get to really in the, in the presentation is that there is a genetic component to sexuality. Now it's not one gene codes for blue eyes and the other gene codes for heterosexuality or not but there is a complex set of genetic circumstances that leads to a biological expression of homosexuality. Um, and that is, where am I going with this? It's in order it, it, um, the the thing that takes this conversation away from one that might be faith based is that there is no choice i i don't have a choice i whether i have brown hair or whether i'm gay it's not something that, you know, is hard. And when I was young, I really tried to fight it. I wanted kids, I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like everyone else and fit in. I was desperate to be straight. I mean, it's, it's less difficult in some societies today, where being gay has a, is actually even celebrated in, but it's a, it's a very, um, for me it was very important and I think the the crux of this exhibition is to say that this is rooted in biology and it's in and it and, and that is something that isn't just okay it's beneficial to the human species to have this kind of diversity
2: Yeah I mean that, that to me is uh, really fascinating and I wonder if you could talk about, some of the ways in which, say, in in human society, uh, but also other other uh, you know basically sort of binary <laughs> oriented groups, um, what are some of those benefits? Um, the social benefits, the the family benefits of that.
3: Right. Well, and so you know we can pick. Different societies for different examples. So, for instance, in um, French Polynesia, where I showed the very first uh, for, first slide, um, they are the um, uh, gay men who are uh, reire or fafine, depending on where you are in the South Pacific, are the um, the matchmakers. And in fact, um, there's um, also that kind of role in society for some Native American nations as well. So um, it's it's part of a social facilitation role that is embedded in society. Um, there's, uh, well, the... Um, In ancient Greece, there were the relations between men, older men and younger men were meant to be, I mean, you know, it was more about, well, as there was, of course, sexual gratification there, but the key part of it and what held this society, societal norm together for a thousand years was that it was a mentoring process and to bring this young man to be fulfilled of take a fulfilled place in society. And it was just expected. Right. And so we have different kinds of social facilitation, but here's another example. And, and it's not, it's not um, single sex sexual Congress But it's still a non-binary situation, which is the, um, a number of the marmosets and tamarins in South America. So this is like the golden lion marmoset is very famous, um, small primate. Um, They have a polyandrous system where two or three males will partner with a single female. And this is uh, to raise the young and live in a family group. The female suppresses the uh, ovulation of any young females that are born into the group. And ultimately she pushes them away, um, pushes the the daughters away. Um, So this whole idea of helpers at the nest. And so what happens is these multiple males, they are partnered with the female, but they're finding food, they're defending the young, they're doing all of these roles. In a, in a social group. So this is, this is something, but helpers at the nest also happen in birds. Non-reproductive adults will, um, there's a lot of um, complex societies that, um, that uh, display this sort of behavior, complex animal societies. So does that, does that answer your question?
2: Yeah, no, it, it does. I, I, I wanted to kind of hear some of those examples uh, yeah, from, <laughs> from different cultures. Um, when you and I were chatting before, you mentioned the sort of Disneyfication of- yes. Our, yes. our perceptions of- That's right. Of natural roles and that kind of thing. And you told me a story about how the plot of Finding Nemo
3: Yes, yes, would
2: be very different. Could you tell us about
3: that? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, we can talk about Bambi as well. So so finding Nemo, finding Nemo, that is a clownfish that I mentioned in, uh, in one of those slides earlier on. So in this group, the the clownfish are all in a group, lots of males, a single female. And so if finding Nemo were biologically accurate, the first thing that would have happened, is that, um, uh, Nemo's father would have changed into his mother. And so he would have changed sex into a female, then presumably they would have, I don't know where they would have traveled to after that. Um, but also think, think about, and so this brings up actually the, when you, we talked about Disneyfication, the, the idea that, uh, all of these animal stories, whether it's, uh, Uh, the Lion King or, or Finding Nemo or Bambi, they give us a a kind of 1950s sense of a mother and a father and a number of children. And that, whether consciously or not, um, uh, I think has affected animal behaviorists who are out in the field looking for a certain pattern of behavior that fits their worldview. And that's nothing, you know, you can't, you can't unsee things that you learned as a child and how this, you know, how your norms were solidified. Bambi, um, there's a lot of homosexual behavior in male deer. Uh, So this whole idea of um, Bambi meeting a cute little girl, girl deer and then them growing up together and and then forming another little nuclear unit there are um there it's a very fluid situation there and so what we're doing is we're not only anthropomorphizing the animals as characters but we're also anthropomorph anthropomorphizing their entire society so that is a is a very um uh um it's is it right or wrong is it pernicious no but what it does do what it has done is unwittingly made it harder for people who don't fit the norm because the norm is always what you're trying to be um there was oh no there was another story i'm sure i'll think of it in a second um no go ahead were you well, I <clears throat> I kind of wanted
2: to uh, ask you about some of the kinds of uh, the way that we should be looking at nature. I mean, those of us here in the uh, Northwest, yes, we're walking on the beaches, we're walking in the rainforest. You know, we're we're living in these environments. We're observing them. We go birdwatching, and that kind of thing. And and so I'm curious about. Uh, what's some of the things we should be thinking about with this knowledge that we have when we well, look like, you know, like a starfish or a sea cucumber right. or uh, whatever.
3: This is, well, there's there's a couple of things here. And one of them was, remember I, a second ago, I forgot what I was going to say. And I just came yeah. back
0: to you. Oh, answer, good. Okay.
3: But this is perfect, actually, because when you're saying, what should we be looking at? Animal behavior in the 50s and earlier say from the 19th century to the 50s was um predominant were dominated by the idea of male choice male the males were um the the kings and their wives were supplicants and and there was this this big um big differential, power differential, where the males had it all. And uh, and when women's liberation movement happened and females started becoming scientists, women were then biologists out observing in nature what they saw, all of a sudden, female organisms had agency. And this whole idea of female choice became... Um, uh, a new lens that we could look at uh, the whole animal world and the relationships between animals. So then when you're thinking about what to look at, just to get back to your question, when you're thinking about what to look at in, um, in nature, the most important thing is to try to be aware of your own lenses. What are you, what are you seeing? How do you interpret a starfish? you know, the, or, or a snail, which might be hermaphroditic or, or, you know, there, I mean, there's so many things to think about gametes. I mean, um, starfish are broadcast spawners, right? So they, they don't mate at all. They just release their, um, release their genetic material into the water column. And if they do it enough, the, um, the the gametes will find each other and form um zygotes and eventually Mm -hmm. settle and maybe thousands of miles um before they do that coral the same way so there's a lot of i mean to to think for me the biggest single message is that diversity strengthens species and so we talk about how one organism might uh, behave or within, sorry, one species might behave. We talk about all kinds of behaviors at a species level, but actually at an individual level, those differences make those species able to adapt to changing circumstances. It's like having genetic diversity of other kinds, right? We, um, the shaggy haired Llama lives when there's a snowstorm, when the shorter hair one doesn't. And all of a sudden, all the, the llamas are, are um, shaggy haired because it was that component of diversity that saved the species. So that to me is a, a really, um, uh, and the, probably the one single takeaway that diversity of all kinds is beneficial.
2: Yeah, it, and that extends then to social diversity. That's exactly words, right. That's right, right. That this isn't. So, ju- there's biological diversity, but that social diversity extends from that, is shaped by that.
3: Right, and you know it's interesting. There are many species that can get along just fine with no diversity at all. So, um, there are uh, fence lizards and and some geckos, shrimp, guppies that, um, that reproduced by parthenogenesis. And that is, um, the it's mitosis, right? So the division of body cells, not gametes coming together, egg and sperm, but they just create are all female. They just create fertile eggs within their own bodies. And all those babies are female, but those organisms are not, um, they're, they're okay for a very specific set of circumstances, but biologically it's much safer to have greater diversity and mixing of gametes. And that's what this whole sexual drive is for, is to increase the mixing from the gametes of one organism to the gametes of another. And then when you get to the social idea, at a biological sense, there's um, there's uh, every reason to embrace the same sort of diversity biologically with people, um, but also then socially. I think this is where the harder conversation has it ha- has to be, because if we're if we're basing everything on biology, then we might say, okay, I, I haven't talked about gender dysphoria at all at this point, but this is also something that will be in um, in the exhibition. So, so the idea, how gender dysphoria happens, and this is a gross oversimplification. So, if there are any if there are any uh, doctors in the house, please forgive me, but um, in in vitro when, when a, when a, uh, an organism is, uh, when a, when a baby is born, sorry, the baby is in the uterus. It is bathed in these, uh, in a whole set of hormones, which helps the baby develop a sexual identity, right? So this is, this is something that happens within the mother. And then there's the 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 gender of the organ of the I'm sorry of the fetus, which comes from the the gamete of the father, the sperm, right? So there's two different things happening. There's the sex of the of the child and the sexual identity, which is developed. And usually those things match up just fine. But there are times when those things don't match up. And so um, a a person can be born with gender dysphoria as in the gender they know themselves to be is not the sex of their genes. And surgery, they call it gender corrective surgery because that person knows themselves to be a certain gender, a certain, and they, they feel like a certain sex. But that doesn't match their genes. Now it's an, in the 50s and earlier, or more recently than that, perhaps people were they were trying to change their psychology, right? And, and it's actually much easier to change somebody's gross anatomy than it is to change um, change their whole genome or their whole psyche. And so this, but it's still correction. They're getting themselves to where they are, where they they're getting themselves to where they need to be. Um, but society has a problem with that, right? We we have a an innate need to know what gender somebody is, and if somebody is intersex. Um, as the average person, and this is a psychological phenomenon, the average person will find that somewhat discomforting, and so we have to get beyond that. And you know, we're we're the 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 we're the species that created the Taj Mahal and and Bach and and uh, Da Vinci. We should be able to get ourselves there, and and this idea of the the nobility of spirit that can understand and embrace diversity as being a good thing is, you know, I don't want to get too political in this conversation, but this is the trajectory we need to be on. And and what I hope this exhibition does is help embed that conversation in a scientific rhetoric. So we can say, and, you know, it's funny because I said that the target audience for this exhibition I mean, it's for everybody, and I think anybody who's interested in science uh, or, 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 or nature in general would find this exhibition interesting. But, but where it really is for, is for questioning people, questioning youth and their families. This is the, the exhibition I would have liked to take my parents to when I was questioning my own identity. Because if you can ground these conversations in science, there's a basis of understanding that we, um, we, it's harder to get to just by saying social justice.
2: You know, since, well, there, boy, there are a couple of things I want to get to uh, on, the, on the subject of the sort of intersex, I, I was, I read an article back in like the late seventies or early eighties in the New York Times that was saying that in humans, there are more than two sexes mm, genetically. That's right. Yeah, and I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit, and and then out of that, maybe talk about some of your own issues around sex versus gender identity.
3: Interesting. Sure. Um, so first of all, yes, there are. So for instance, um, there's XXY. Which is uh, so? Males are XY, females are XX. There are um, some uh, people who are XXY. So uh, I, I mentioned uh, when we were talking Tippi Hedren, who was the star of the Birds, um, Hitchcock was, movie. Yes, Hitchcock movie, um, back in the fifties, sixties. Yeah, early sixties. Early sixties. Um, she was XXY. And uh, so she would have been unable to produce children, uh, but but expressed as a um, expressed as a female. So um, there, and there are a number of variations of of, of those um, different sexes, and, and they're um, just flukes of meiosis of the of the creation of of gametes. And the reproduction of um, uh, reproduction of those cells during the fetal development process, but in other ways, completely normal, um, n- normal functioning humans. So um, that is the the recognition that uh, again, you know, we get back to the idea of disnification, the the expectation that everything can be fit into a, a family nucleus like leave it to beaver is a very hard thing when you don't happen to fit into that um, that mold. And we're also, you know, um, I mentioned um, Kinsey and it, you know, I have, I, I'll bring it out again. <laughs> Here it is. Um, Kinsey et al sexual behavior in the human male and there's a couple of things about this that uh, are are important and one of those things and and I know this is getting a little bit away from the idea of two sexes but I think it's really important is that sexual behavior is on a, 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 a gradient and so you use thinking about this book, the 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 um, the gradient of human sexual behavior from completely homosexual to completely heterosexual. Everyone is on that spectrum, whether you're one or the other or somewhere in between. And most people, he argues, or they argue, are somewhere in between, even if it's 98% in one way. And one of the things that was very telling was that um, men can and frequently engage in homosexual acts without considering themselves homosexual, and that is uh, one of the the ways that this can play out in a in a very um, nuanced way, and it's and and that's why the the um, the performance of gender. Is so important because what you choose to perform, what you and and how you do that is a very personal choice. So, um, and this is something that was kind of interesting that we were we were talking about is um, the the idea that you can you can feel a certain way. So I'm I'm gay. I have a husband but I feel completely male. And I'm, I'm so I'm, I, and, and I think this is what you were alluding to the second part of your question. Um, so, and I feel any, um, what's any deviation from my complete maleness as uncomfortable. And so we were, we were talking about, and I'll, I'll do this again, we were talking about Snapchat Um, so everybody knows, probably Snapchat is an app where you can take a photograph of yourself and you can make it a funny picture. So I will, I'm going to first do one that I don't like at all. And this, so I'm going to make myself into a woman. I really don't like this. All right. So there it is. I am done. Done save to photos and we will, um, I'll show it to you. So this is, so this filter makes me look like a woman. And there, there it is. And All right, right. So that is my, and that is, and this is the kind of actually the technology that we're going to give people the chance to play around with <clears throat> in the exhibition because it, it really, it, it helps, make you think about what your own norms are, how how you identify. Now, here's here's the next one. I love this one, right? Because I consider myself a masculine male. And so the, the thing that makes me more masculine, that gives me greater male secondary sexual characteristics, I find totally fun and uh, let's do this all the time. So this is me as a kind of a hyper male, um, the beard, the the square jaw, um, and
2: looks like yeah, a few steroids there.
3: Yes, that's right. I'm t- you know, but it it's true. This is and so, but you know, you're you're performing being a male right now. You've got a beard. You've got it, the 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 collared shirt. The you know everything about you says. I'm a male, you probably don't think about it when you get up in the morning. Today, I'm going to be a male. I don't do that either. And I'm performing being a male as well. And yet, um, it's so regular and so conscious that when we, I mean, unconscious rather that when we choose to do something else, it, it can be very telling. And this is where drag is so interesting You know because they are are men often uh um can be quite masculine men and choosing to perform a feminine or a hyper feminine persona can also be quite confronting to everyone else and and so there's a there there are opportunities with this whole phenomenon to um explore what that diversity means from a social perspective.
2: Okay, well, this raises uh, two questions. Uh, wh- one is, uh, <clears throat> are there other animal cultures that you can point to where beyond sexual behavior, um, animals express the, a gender other than the, the one they are biologically? In yeah. other words, is is there a way they take on or uh, present as female if they're male or vice yeah. versa?
3: There are, there are, um, there's a, a whole lot of them, actually. A bird called a ruff, and the ruff is, uh, it has this big, the male has this big lion's mane full of feathers, and, um... In the feathers can either be like a white, or they can be brown and black, or whatever. But they're hugely impressive. Otherwise, it looks like a regular shorebird without that. And so then the females look like a, they're mottled brown and black, and they have a um, and and they 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 look very inconspicuous. Well, there's a whole group of males that will um. Will they look like females and interestingly the males with the big ruff will the big headdress will uh, attack other males with the headdress but they tolerate the males with the um that look like females even though it's been able to be demonstrated they know the difference and the and the the males will actually the 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 um cryptic males, call it that, will mate with the females and they're tolerated by, by the, by the roughs still. Um, and that I haven't read that this phenomenon has been completely worked out. There's also, um, elephant seals or another, another group. You have these huge beach masters, which come and, um, a, attack each other and there's blood everywhere and it's a real you know they they're enormous there's as big as a volkswagen bug and they've got the big elephant nose and they come yeah. you know any any people out your way will know these um and so the females are maybe a third the size of the male and um they will in fact, this is something, uh, this coming out of UC Santa Cruz, some of this research, the, the, um, the females will incite the males to fight, right? They'll, um, and they'll uh, do that by calling when an, an arrival male will, um, will come, but, but we're talking about the beach masters, right? So if the beach, so another beach master comes and tries to mate, the female will, will make this raucous sound and they'll be a big fight. But there's something else called, um, no, I won't say what they're called because it's a little a little rude and we're being recorded, but sneaky and you can there's another word you can fill, the, uh, fill in for yourselves. And these are males that are about the size of females. and they will sneak up to a, ma- a, a female and mate um, mate and the female doesn't call. She allows this male, to copulate with her and doesn't attract the attention of the, the male, the beachmaster, master. And it's thought once again, that that helps increase genetic diversity. And when um, there was an experiment where um, the, the male, was he sterilized or he happened to be stale, sterile, I can't remember, a big beach master. And the females had just as many babies without the beachmaster's master's copulations than, um, than they did when he was fertile. Maybe the genetic breakup yeah. was different. But again, diversity is king. Interesting. Well, uh,
2: it's time to go to uh, audience questions. I think we sure. have a few.
3: Great. And
2: uh, Rob, I think, is going to come on and, and uh, present some of those questions. Wonderful. Thank you both so much. We have about six questions
1: right now. The first one is, what is your definition, Eric, of binary and non-binary?
3: Sure. Um, Binary is male male heterosexual, female heterosexual. Non-binary is anything that deviates from that.
1: Okay. Another question. Temperature plays an important role in determining sex, doesn't it? Could you say more about the ramifications of that?
3: Sure. So in some species, there are um, crocodiles, sea turtles, there is sex determinant, um, temperature determinant, sex determination, sexual dependent sex determination. So what happens is um, that um, the female will lay the eggs in a, in a mound or in, in the case of crocodiles and in the case of sea turtles in just on the beach in a hole. And the, in normal circumstances, the, um, the eggs on the top will be more exposed to the sun and they will turn out to be, let me think, warmer is male, warmer is male, cooler is female. And um, the, the cooler ones below will become females they'll all hatch out and you'll get a gender mix. One of the concerns about species who practice this is that climate change is making the eggs all male. And so when they hatch out, you're lowering the the population of females, which is really important because one male can inseminate many, many females, whereas one female only needs one male. And so you could see a, a real decline in the species over time with climate change.
1: Also, this exhibition was originally planned to open in 2021. Could you give us an update on what you know about the opening?
3: Oh yeah, um, well, it's it's been delayed. Um, the, there have been a number of changes at the Carnegie and um, including my departure. Um, and one of the saddest things for me actually is not to stay there and, be, um, to steward this exhibition to the, to its fruition. But, um, so I don't know what their time frame is on that, unfortunately. Um, But my guess is that it wouldn't be before 2023 at this point.
1: If you could go back to the clownfish for a minute, you were suggesting that a clownfish can morph its gender in real time. Can you tell us what kind of time that takes?
3: Oh, what, oh, now, now I'm not, This is not my area of expertise. Um, My guess is months, I'm guessing. Um, But, you know, again, they probably hundreds of clownfish biologists in the area who are quite upset with me for saying that.
1: (laughs) Eric, you started the discussion with about 4,000 years of history. Where do you think all species will be in another 1,000 or 2,000 years from now? Oh,
3: gosh. Yeah, that's really tough. Is that with climate change or without it? Because that to me is the biggest single factor that will affect the future, not only of our species, but of all species on the planet and the, the existence of the planet itself. As long as we don't destroy everything, we have the, I mean, it's clear we're already going through a major, major bottleneck. And then because humans are so impactful, the biggest question is, do humans survive the next thousand years or don't they? And if they don't survive, then I think we'll see a real flourishing of diversity. If we do survive, then what we will have is huge numeric predominance of those species that are that are bound to human existence like chickens and cattle. Um, there are currently, if I'm remembering the statistic right, I think there's something like Um, 16 billion chickens on earth right now living on earth. So,
1: well, gentlemen, we are so grateful for this conversation tonight. It's been fascinating. Eric, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your flexibility in this COVID situation. And being oh, yes,
3: I'm sorry. I can't do it in person. I would have really loved to, um, and hopefully I'll get to come in and visit you in the future.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And Knut, thank you for such a great job all year on this series and for helping plan from the very beginning, the whole University series.
2: Yeah, you bet, Rob. It's been a pleasure to be a part of it.
1: Thank you, everybody, and have a great night. We appreciate your attendance.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Good night. Thank you. Thanks, Eric.
0: Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of Communiversity is Robert Berman, Centrum's executive director. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation.